didn't quite make sense, it will be on your mind all day. And sometimes it isn't necessarily of any consequence. And I'm sure it happens to me all the time when I'm preaching. But this morning I said something like, you go off script, or if you're not on script at all, I said something like, we don't call animals he or she. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course we do. What I had in mind is we don't look back on the sacrifice lambs and say he or she, even though they're he's. Uh, we just don't tend to do that. My point was the true sacrifice for our sins was a he and his name was Jesus. So maybe you heard that, picked up on it, maybe you didn't. It was on my mind all day. So if I didn't say anything, I, I wouldn't be able to concentrate. Anyway, our passage tonight is Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin reading the first 38 verses. Keep your Bibles there because we'll look at other verses towards the end. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord's people, the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had, spoke, he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people." 
In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel, angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and, his, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There ends reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this account that your servant Luke compiled for us and was directed by your Holy Spirit to provide for us just the words that we needed to have in order for us to understand the things of faith, things that glorify you, things for life, things that matter. We pray as we explore your word together tonight that you would minister to us. So please send your Holy Spirit in a special way as we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We left off this morning with 400 years to go before Christmas, a long time to wait. It was a time of deafening silence. It's not as if history stopped for those 400 years. It's not as if God's sovereign hand was removed from all the details of history. Certainly, nothing can happen without God's sovereign hand and his providence involved. Nor did he stop caring for his own people, Israel, nor did he plan to break his promise to redeem Gentiles. But when it came to the history of redemption, the history of salvation, that story of salvation from our standpoint, that story that started with the fall and came all the way up to Malachi, uh, that ceased, the spoken word ceased. There was silence. God did not speak to his people. There was no prophecy. There were no theophanies, no appearances of Christ pre-incarnate, nothing spectacular, at least that we know of. There were thousands of years of God interacting with his people in various ways, and then, and then silence. Silence. The people of God had scrolls, they had the scriptures, but they had no new revelation. Their hope hung on the promises that God had given to them thus far, that there would be a coming Messiah that would come and deliver his people. So what happened between Malachi and Luke? I want to paint for us tonight a broad picture. It's a bleak picture. It's a little odd for me to spend time in a sermon, sermon preaching something that's actually outside of Scripture itself, but there's this gap. 
in the inspired word of God going from Malachi to Luke. And it's important for us to understand at least some background that came into play before the time of Christ. Again, painting with a broad brush, a bleak picture, sort of a gloomy, dark oil on canvas. God's nation had already been fragmented shortly after Solomon. There was a lot of strife in Israel and then in Judah itself. They had squandered so many of the blessings that God had given to them already at this point. The northern part of the kingdom, Israel, was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom taken into Babylon by the Babylonians, the southern kingdom, Judah. I'm not going to give a lot of dates and times and names, but again, the broad picture. In this time, the temple itself, that center focus of Jewish Hebrew worship, was in various states of repair and disrepair, uh, destruction and then repair. Uh, No matter what, the glory hadn't returned like it had once been there in the days of Solomon. The ark itself was absent. There were reforms in the nation. There was backsliding in the nation. There was encouragement and there was discouragement. The world powers that were at odds with each other played a major role in developing the state that we find Israel in when we come to the time of Christ. It shouldn't surprise us when we read the history through those 400 years because Daniel prophesied very specifically about how things would pan out, at least for those major nations, that would impact God's people. When we left the Jews, they were under Persian rule in the territory that they lived, and they lived in relative stability. Not long after that, about 100 years, which isn't long in history, Alexander the Great took over, and the Hellenists, the Greeks, began to influence that whole territory, and the Jews were strongly influenced, at least those who were easily influenced, began to adapt many of the ways of the Greeks. Uh, There was certainly always a remnant that held out and maintained the truth and traditions of the Jewish people. They had relative peace then, though, under Alexander. However, in time, things got bad for the Jews. Bad characters came in, rulers came in under the Syrians, and and it became a, a, a death penalty to practice your Judaism at one point. It became very dangerous for the Jews. The temple was defiled by a guy who thought he was God in the flesh. Pagan sacrifices took place. The Jews did, some of them, try to throw a rebellion, but they couldn't take it anymore. They wanted to overthrow this wicked reign that was so perverse. And there was some success. The temple was restored, but around 600 years before Christ, Pompey comes in. And he ravages the land. He ushers in the Roman age, and he slaughters many of the priests, and he defiles the temple of God, a wicked man. So Palestine or Israel becomes subject to Rome. And they're under Roman rule, which is tense, but at least they're under what's known as the Pax Romana. They have relative peace. They have some local sovereignty. But the Romans appoint someone over them to be their pretended king, Herod the Great. Very wicked man. If you read the history of Herod the Great, first of all, he didn't belong on the throne of Israel Uh, Secondly, he was an extremely perverse, murderous man who would murder his own family members if need be. So the Romans appoint him as 
their ruler under Rome, Herod the so-called Great, labeled great because of his great building projects. He did restore the temple. He did a magnificent job restoring the temple, brought it physically, worldly, in a worldly sense, beyond that which it had ever been in the history of Israel. And yet it was robbed of its glory. Still the center of the focus of God's people, but robbed of its glory. But here you have God's people under this wicked Herod, this puppet leader for the Jews. So over the years, so much had happened. Not very much positive had happened for the Jewish people, at least from a worldly perspective, but God was preparing his people to receive their Messiah, and that's huge. So we come to our passage and we discover that there's a remnant that's waiting. There are people who are godly people, faithful people, praying, seeking the Lord, looking for the Messiah, certainly praying that would, Messiah would come. Again, central to their focus is still Jerusalem, is still the temple, and that's where we find ourselves. Things have developed to kind of paint the bigger picture in this time. The group of the Sadducees and the Pharisees had been established. The synagogue system was in place for a place of teaching and teaching the law to the Jewish people. Leadership had been appointed over God's people, but they were corrupt and they were controlling. In Jesus' estimation, it left the people as people, as sheep without a shepherd. He called out their corruption. The religious leaders, the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees would, would play a key role throughout the gospel, would actually play a key role. Mostly the Sadducees and the high priests, the chief priests, would play a part in Jesus' crucifixion. But that's the kind of setting that we're in when we come to the beginning of Luke. I jumped ahead a little bit there. But again, the focus here is on Jerusalem, and that's where the silence is finally broken. Here, this man, Zechariah, it's his turn to perform sacrifices in the temple. And the silence is broken by an angel. Now, we might just read this opening up of the gospel and not, not think that that's, that's such a big deal. I mean, I guess we would say being approached by an angel is a pretty big deal. But the fact that God had not interacted with his people for 400 years should make us pause and think, what is going on here? And the angel comes to Zechariah and tells him that he's going to have a child, and as we would expect. As we would expect, Zechariah is totally perplexed. How can this be? I'm old. My wife is old. How can this be? Well, the angel had told him it was going to be, and he should have listened because, as you know, Gabriel calls, calls Zechariah out and says, you're going to be silenced. You're not going to be able to speak. But then blessing upon blessing comes, and Elizabeth does become with child. But the child is significant in this, and we begin to see the unfolding of the prophecies that we looked at in Malachi this morning, the first prophecy of one coming as Elijah, a type of Elijah, and that would be this child to be called John. And John is given a very specific mission. It's twofold, really, because he's to call people to repent before God, to have a fear of the Lord, to repent of their sins but also to prepare for the one who would come, this Messiah, this long-awaited Messiah. The focus of John's ministry would not just be calling people to repent, it would be calling people to look to Jesus. And as we know, he does that eventually. 
But for now, he's just a little tiny baby in Elizabeth's womb. The scene shifts and another angel appears to Mary. Mary, this humble virgin who was obviously a godly young woman, is approached by an angel once again. And what she's told is even more perplexing because she's told that she will become pregnant, but she's never been with a man. She's engaged to Joseph, but she's never been with him in the family way, we might say. And so she's told that she's going to be with child and she's completely perplexed. But Mary, this is not going to come in any ordinary way. It's going to be the most extraordinary thing ever that you will be with child conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the one in your womb is going to be the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. As we would understand, Mary is perplexed. But because of her character and because of her spirituality, she was humbled and blessed by this this profound revelation that must have undone her, that must have made her go through this thought process of things like, what will Joseph think? What will my neighbors think? What will everyone think? The Lord settles that issue by approaching Joseph. Joseph is finally put to ease. And so so here they're expecting this child together, Joseph the presumed father, Mary the pregnant young mother. The focus isn't on Mary, is it? The focus isn't on Joseph either. The focus is on the baby, Jesus. And they're very specifically told that you will name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save God's people from their sins. That is the wonderful promise of the Messiah. Those those prophecies, again, from Genesis all the way down through Malachi. Promise after promise, type after type, pointing to Christ. We end up with Malachi pointing to, we understand now, John the Baptist, just like the character of Elijah. And the Lord who comes in that great and awesome day is this Christ child. And all things are fulfilled. What a great and awesome truth this is. Well, these two little babies meet. Pick up in verse 39 in Luke chapter 1. In those days, Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What an amazing, what amazing scenario. Here, Elizabeth, six months into her pregnancy, Mary very early into her pregnancy, they meet together and there is this this deep spiritual mysterious communication somehow between the person of Jesus in Mary's womb and the person of John in Elizabeth's womb. John's filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus with the Spirit in fullness. 
and John leaps for joy in the mother's womb. We men who never carried a child wouldn't understand what that meant, but I'm sure that women who have carried children and have felt the child jostling in their womb can at least relate to this a little bit. But for Elizabeth to understand that this was joy in the presence of the Lord must have been an awesome thing. What an awesome thing. Well, perplexing as all this is, humble Mary is truly blessed, and she breaks out in song. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Mary is caught up in the beauty of the moment and the beauty of the blessing that she has to bear the Messiah that had been waited for for so long that, that she herself was undoubtedly looking for. And as we, as we discovered this morning, she couldn't really know all that was involved. At this point anyway, even though she was told so much, she couldn't know fully what to expect. Any more than those Old Testament saints, even though it became more and more clear what this Messiah would look like, here's Mary bearing the Messiah, this great mystery that, that Israel had been waiting for for 400 years. We leave off tonight with nine months left, technically six months from what we just read. Six months, or nine months, if you will, until Christmas. Our joy is complete. The Savior has come this is good news of great joy, as we'll discover. But for the rest of this glorious story, we'll wait till next week. Let's pray. Lord, our God, once again, we are so thankful that you have spoken to us. And Lord, we haven't had an angel appear in our midst. We haven't heard a voice echoing through these walls but we've heard your word, and your word is truth, and your word is powerful. And we thank you for this account that your servant recorded for his friend, so that he might be assured of the truths that he had come to believe. And my prayer tonight, brief as this was, that these truths would bear upon the souls of all of us here tonight, that we would be further assured of the glorious truths that we celebrate this Christmas season, the glorious truth that Jesus has come. Our Savior has come. We rejoice in that and we give you praise. And we bring you all the glory as we come to you in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.